Hello and welcome. I am Anna Papard. You might know me from this podcast, the Ogasho oh Golio Wow podcast, where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. And guess what? My co-hosts, Christopher Maverick and Andrew Demand, plus a plethora of amazing guests, have been podcasting about Excalibur for 54 weeks already, which seems like a perfect time to look back on the year that was. You are about to hear approximately one minute from each of our regular episodes, chronicling Excalibur number one to Sit back, relax, and relive all the guffaws, griping, and gushing. I can only hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur! Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a talker, writer, maker, occasional university instructor, and Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. A joke that will either get really old really quickly, or I'm just going <laughs> to lean into it even more and start dropping the unofficial. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by... Hi. <laughs> <laughs> or I totally derailed you. You talked about how low the water is. It's something that could appear in a Playgirl layout. Mm-hmm. He is ever so barely underwater, just so you can't see his penis. They are definitely trying to get you to think of nightcrawler as a sexual being okay we're gonna end up talking about like tail imagery and things um throughout this podcast i'm assuming but what is he captain of he's not in the military he's captain of britain what do you what do you mean the ship of britain (laughs) and she even says at one point i'm going to save kitty even if it kills me Kurt is the advisor. He's the bishop. Brian is the king. He's useless, but (laughs) the figurehead. And Mm -hmm. and Rachel's the queen, man. She's the one with all the power and therefore the one who's in control. Do you want any of these characters to end up together? No. Um... (laughs) That's probably the right answer. I believe that I was supposed to be rooting against the lughead quarterback and rooting for Ducky. I mean, that's who. That's who oh, Kurt, don't, right? don't do that to Kurt, please. I, I hate Ducky I, so much. And please don't do that. But, he's not the nice guy. He's better than that. He's better than that. He's not a very good boyfriend because he never really had to worry about being a good boyfriend. He was just rich and good looking and tall. So. <laughs> Also, when we got to that Nightcrawler scene, like, I did not know that Nightcrawler was fine as hell. Like, I feel like I've been cheated. Where was that Nightcrawler in the X-Men movies? 
the pose that he strikes when he falls beneath her and she's leaning on top of him and he is being his most charming there where she's like you're a beast not really i'm much more charming and cuter that's like Mm -hmm. kurt at his most appealing and it is manipulative and i think that that is (laughs) present and yet it's very effective i want to be megan's adopted father who just thinks she can do better and (laughs) yeah I don't know whether that's like sweet or creepy, and it's maybe a little bit of both. Oh, it's but I'm both. gonna I'm... make no sense at all. Um, <laughs> putting this up with a silver head that has no name that takes on some properties, I guess. Kid that doesn't seem to be part of any continuity. I don't know where that kid's going at all. Um, and oh, poor I Colin. believe you that those go somewhere. They killed Courtney, you bastards. Um... Yes, I know. That scene is brutal. That is brutal. Um, unpopular opinion. I'm glad she's dead. Like, ah. oh. There's a really interesting kind of body possession sexual climax thing going on, almost too overt as they're splashing around in white goo for a number of pages. You know, the way Nightcrawler is rendered just is impressive. Please go on, yes. Right, you talk about having a crush on him, and in, like, this issue, I get why. Like, he's got, like, that macho, like, soapy, like, half-open shirt going on with his abs <laughs> showing half the time. And you're sitting there and going, like, yeah, no, I totally hit that monster, right? Like, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> We haven't talked about them stopping on the barge because Kitty has to oh, pee. Yeah. That, that, is, <laughs> that is that is literally my favorite Kitty Pride moment in her entire character run. So good. Uh, it's like my favorite moment in comics, period. Yeah, Kurt does have like that Oscar Isaac vibe of he has sexual chemistry oh. with anyone regardless of gender. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> first episode i said you know one of the things about inferno and excalibur in general is hey look 14 year old mav we are exposing you to bdsm have a nice life and there was there was a, a period of time in which i referred to my parents as power man and iron fist <laughs> oh my god i love that so much she's the sort of naive innocent victim character but she also has the symbolic attribute of being invincible so is luke skywalker yeah, yeah. so is batman yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Batman, batman is the ultimate mary sue jim clothes are considered indecent for both ryan and megan which is just yeah, so like yeah. so 80s to be like ew you're wearing your gym clothes in public <laughs> um <laughs> I was like, man, I got the issue where the dragon gets choked oh, out on the first no, page. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was so bummed. The magic of Kitty Pride is you're supposed to be a 14, 15 year old boy and you're supposed to think, oh, if I were on this team, I could date her. And you couldn't because she'd hate you because Kitty is better than you are. And Kitty only only dates older boys. And she's frankly kind of bitchy to everybody, which is what I love about her, right? Like. <laughs> Alan Moore's development in the multiverse wasn't based on science fiction. It was based on science. This is the many worlds interpretation. It is well established in physics and quantum physics since the 1950s. This isn't a conceit. This is the world we live in. So I'm teaching across Aristotle's body of work, which is enormous. I mean, the man was undoubtedly a genius. What he produced was astonishing. Um, Lots of it is just horribly wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And, and they talk about it, right? The dialogue even says, I couldn't separate myself from her. I couldn't tell what was her and what was me. And they're both so upset about it. And, and that's exactly how this kind of, this form of monstrosity works, right? Where you desperately want to be able to separate yourself out, but you can't because it is still you as horrifying as it is. So I just love Megan for this reason. <laughs> I just think she's so fascinating. 
Yeah, I didn't know what to make of it when Anna emailed me and said, we think you'd be perfect for the Nazi episode. <laughs> <laughs> On April Fool's Day, I'm like, this has to be a prank. Unfortunately not. This is a comic that exists. Yeah, the other really important line of dialogue is when Rachel says you'd be amazed how easily after a while horror becomes your natural state of being and butchery the norm. 2021, it's a very chilling sentence to read now. And so, once again, Rachel was the reason I was reading this book. This sounds like I'm sucking up for some reason, but the (laughs) the Twitter feed actually from this podcast really made me appreciate what was happening a lot more. I think I looked at it as much more of a like boundary pushing kind of comic and I appreciate it a lot more. I'd really like to see Davis, Neary and Oliver take a second crack at. Yeah. Because I feel like they could have made gold out of this thing. I appreciate, like, in particular, the way that their biggest exchange is that she says, call me Ray. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And she's, there's a reading where she just dismisses him for the rest of the issue. <laughs> I think what really drew me to it initially was the friendships and the relationships between the characters and the kind of zany adventures they were having. And it was kind of different from the beat up sort of X-Men type stuff that my brother's comics were. And I really liked that. We're going to fight an ogre, and we're going to fight a weird swamp monster thing, and the shaitan, and, like, there's a lot Tentacles, there's a lot of tentacles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if you want to see who Kitty Pryde is compared to a Disney princess, you literally put her in a specimen jar next to a Disney princess, and that's exactly what happens. Yes! Yes. It's just really stood out to me how many tentacles there are in this issue. It's really a lot. There's, like, four (laughs) separate instances. Um, I also spend a bit of uh, my work thinking about her vis-a-vis John Hughes and John Hughes's films in the 80s, thinking about how she sort of echoes in some ways Molly Ringwald. You know, she has that one sort of beautiful panel flash page, you know, Professor X is a jerk. Jerk is definitely a word that Molly Ringwald uses in Pretty in Pink. I find it amazing that Brian instantly recognizes an older doppelganger of Saturnine who's put on an extra 30 pounds over <laughs> yeah. the years, but change your hair to brown and he's and he's Yeah. Lost. And also Lockheed. I mean, the dragon's getting distracted and he's moving off the center of the page and I don't really notice it. And then he's like, oh shit. You know? He's like, yeah. and they're like, wait a second, dragon. We started with the beautiful gem that is volume one that everybody loves because they read it when they were 10 and Mm. everybody's dialogue ends in exclamation marks and Wolverine's (laughs) claws are out the entire time, which leads to some interesting (laughs) questions about how he uses restrooms. Did I get a PhD so I would have an excuse to just read comics all day? I mean, I don't know. It was definitely a factor. So behind the scenes stuff, when we were doing the show, when we were coming up with the show, I think I pitched the originally as, as the title. And I was like, well, I just like stupid jokes. No one's going to get this. <laughs> like, this is going to be, this is so obscure, but I love it. I think, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. It's, it's not just a refrain from the series. I think it's actually its mission statement. It just announced itself like, we're not going to be the soap opera book. We're going to be the book of wonder. And we're going to be the book that makes you think and laugh and play. And we're going to remind you what it's like to be a kid, but not in a juvenile way. We're not going to speak down to you. We're going to run through the field with you. Andrew, do you remember encountering this the first time? Um, I have a sad story. This was a gap issue for me. I- I've talked oh! before about it. 
Yeah, growing up in Thunder Bay, I didn't have good access to comics, and I really wanted the Cross Time Caper. This was the one issue that I couldn't get, so I only read this like a few years ago. Oh, Andrew, that is I know. so sorry. <laughs> when the wave is coming and they're on the cliff, Brian gets to science, and he seems yes, so yes. happy. Because Brian doesn't want to be Captain Britain. Brian wants to be Kitty Pride, and he yeah. gets to do that for a moment, and I really like that. There's three panels of the ogre from two issues ago. Yeah. And this just very much cements to me that the ogre is Catherine's sex slave. That (laughs) (laughs) All I wanted to think about as I was reading this comic was that Excalibur, despite the fact that it's being published on the heels of a deeply homophobic Jim Shooter era at Marvel, (laughs) is a text in which none of the characters are what you might call this mythical category of heterosexual, right? Like, this is an incredibly queer comic. We can have Jamie Braddock pulling on threads all we want, but those threads, to me, in some sense, are these interwoven threads of desire that are crisscrossing across characters in this particular issue especially but in the series as a whole this is the moment in which maybe most clearly in Excalibur we can go back to somebody like a Sedgwick right or a Gerard and think about the fact that maybe this love triangle isn't really about always setting up Megan and Brian for the end but it's actually about the fact that Kurt and Brian maybe want to rail each other at some point the most important thing that I think Brian ever says in the entire run at Excalibur is you make such an attractive woman Nightcrawler because it's sincere like I I don't see it as a joke Kurt as this sort of swashbuckling gentleman, sexy bathtub guy, right? Um, Brian as this sort of, you know, is that how we refer to him? That's how we refer to him, right? Um, yep, yep. The three thirstiest texts I've ever read in my life are Twilight, A Princess of Mars, and Excalibur. His favorite X Men growing up was Cyclops because he's basic. Oh. <laughs> I was an Excalibur virgin, or a Galahad, if you will. God, I can't even tell you how much anger I have at so many X-Men adaptations and the portrayal of Nightcrawler in the sense that I did encounter that X-Men multimedia growing up, and if he'd been Excalibur Nightcrawler, I would have been an X-Men fan 20 years earlier than I am. The narrator says that he's coped in an inimitable style uniquely his own. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which is... Claremont saying this is Nightcrawler's ideal existence. And this is like a very special present to Kurt in that, oh, you've always put on this mask and this masquerade of being the swashbuckler. It's always been this disguise or this persona that you've put on. And now here's a world where it's not the persona. What kind of a workout was he doing on these people? And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's intentional given the context of this world. But Excalibur has but a yeah. lot of butt up shots. But um, yeah. this issue is very, very fan servicey, but it's fan servicey of the types of fan gazes that often don't get prioritized in this genre, like female gazes and gay male gazes. People who like to look at lean muscle devil boys lounging around in bed and licking wine off people's hands. Oh my God, how did they get this past 1989 censors? I have met this woman. She is beautiful. She finds me beautiful. And now we're going to bang hard in this hot tub. There's this read of Kurt that people do where it's like, oh, he's able to be witty and charming and attractive despite his monstrous appearance. And I'm just like, what? That's like a feature, not a bug. (laughs) Like, you're not getting it. (laughs) Like, I'm telling you. Kurt's natural state is to be a very flexible human being with a prehensile tail. Why would that not be a part of your sex life? Of course it it gets involved. Like, how else would it not? Like, it would be weird if it didn't. 
I have heard through the grapevine, and it's not going to come up for like quite a while on the podcast, that Liz might be somewhat of a fan of a Mr. Pete Wisdom. I have been oh, a no. Pride and Wisdom shipper since 1996, no. and I'm not going to change now. I am not going to change my bad opinion now. <laughs> Ryan has sex with the planet. Wait, like, what? He has sex with the planet. <laughs> Megan is surging with the entire repressed energy oh, longing for release. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. That's interesting and very Claremontian, quite frankly. I did like how he gives that, you know, opening tournament speech and he's trying to be real serious, but oh, you can tell yeah. he doesn't know what he's doing. And even Megan's <laughs> like, oh, you're so good at this. You're so great at being a, a pompous twit. I love it. She's able to take on that responsibility because she wants to, because she gets angry very often in Excalibur. She's angry a lot. And I think that's a crucial part of her can argue that the way that it's drawn we're seeing penetration on panel i don't think i read it as that explicit when i first read it and then as soon as you said it i'm like ah oh, crap her hair She's is right. damp too <laughs> i mean there's dampness here you know you know she she keeps finding people and it's like yes are you my mother and they're not her mother oh. but close enough you know and i'm actively repressing the urge to just randomly shout things like fruits basket or sailor moon which is the most influential shoujo um, but I will not wow. do that because I'm going to be cool. <laughs> Although I don't read comics, I do read lots of manga where I'm thrown into worlds where the impossible is made possible. What I was confused about, though, was because I didn't know that Kitty's like widget. Is it widget? The the machine? I didn't know that that was an actual character. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, there's eyes on it. I'm curious, just as a deviation, spoilers for you. Yes. <laughs> widget has not been explained. And we've been like joking oh. with our listeners because since the comic never bothered to explain who or what Widget was, he just shows up one day. So wow. to you, <laughs> what do you think Widget is? I thought he was just like a machine. Maybe from the future, and that's it. That's like a pretty, <laughs> pretty good, good like, yeah. We can't just identify certain tropes out of context and label them as sexist. Also, critical discussions on the role of like shoujo, which I guess roughly translates to like adolescent girls and bishonen, which refers to like beautiful boys and, you know, manga and anime are often understood to occupy a very liminal fluid space that transcends or defies binary ways of understanding representations of like biological sex. I'm just going to pretend you know what I'm talking what you're talking about because I'm a, I'm a Hamilton hater over here. Oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> no so into the show. Nice meeting you off. Bye. My kids can <laughs> sing that entire soundtrack. No, that's not too personal. Um <laughs> but as far as our relationship goes, I mean, the thing that if I'm go I'm going to get deep here for a second. The go thing that it. makes me feel so much joy in my life on a regular basis is that Justin is a person that I met at a point in my life when I was just figuring out that like being who I really was was actually okay and he's always been someone that just completely lets me be who I am and I think that's why we click together so well so I feel like it's just taken us a step further into just being for me anyway, just being completely comfortable with who I am and the whole X community is wonderful in that way. Yeah. Like everyone is so accepting and wonderful and encouraging and we are children and we now are just a step further into being adult children. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. That's so lovely. Thank you. 
I feel honor bound to mention on this podcast that the very first day I met Anna, I met her in a class. And after that class, I texted my friend to say, I'm in class with a girl who dresses like a superhero. (laughs) And this was entirely before knowing what she studied. (laughs) You know, I grew up in a home that had a framed picture of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King shaking hands prominently displayed in our dining room. So I know, the, uh, I, I know that picture. I know exactly <laughs> what that picture looks like. Yep. <laughs> did that, you have a black Jesus? <laughs> we did not have a black Jesus. Oh, you're missing out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I also remember quite liking Gambit, although upon rewatching that series as an adult, different feelings. This isn't like going to see the old Excalibur you knew and love. This is a cover band. It's all the things that are sort of Excalibur on the surface with all the underlying character dynamics and tensions and complexities and nuances stripped away. Like he's an asshole. He's not an idiot. And that bugged me because it cheapened the complicated character that I enjoy hating. I think it's important when we're talking about the nice guy trope to be careful that we don't just like label anyone who has an unrequited crush and is sad about it Mm -hmm. as a nice guy. Like, I mean, it's certainly possible to have that kind of pining that coexists with friendship in a way that doesn't feel manipulative, which I, which is, I think, the aspect that makes the nice guy trope so dangerous. So now I'm kind of infinitely more confused because based on just <laughs> reading this issue, right. I assumed that what was the case is that she and Brian were not in a serious relationship. Oh, no, no. They live together. Yep. That is, that is wild. Yeah, that is his living. Yeah. That is his living girlfriend. Brian's big struggle at this point is I am very sick of my needy supermodel superhero girlfriend. So I'm going to go hang out with my supermodel banker girlfriend. Oh, that's a hard yikes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Continuity comic asks its reader to do a lot of work to know a lot of stuff coming into it. And a comic that starts itself in a new version of the world takes some of that burden away from the reader. It says, okay, here's a bunch of exposition. This is where we are. This is the the value set. And he does bodies pretty well. But again, a certain type of body that I think maybe isn't ideal for Excalibur. Having this much boob and this type of boob in this particular image, I think is maybe not the most productive choice you could have made. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's entirely fair. Yeah. People sometimes don't understand that part of the reason we do this work is because we actually really love these things and we just want them to be better. And that's part of where kind of our passion for critiquing these things oftentimes comes from. We're not out here just hating on these things because we're angry, vengeful people. Like we're here because we love these things and we want them to be better. And like, that's a huge part of what we're doing. It can be both. Because this episode's going to make it hard. Given (laughs) how this was going to go, I know. But we just just keep in mind, listeners, we, we are yelling about this issue because we love the panel that had him and her dangling and he's saving her and he calls her the damsel in distress is like at that point I rolled my eyes I just found it cringeworthy the flirting felt very much off and creepy but I will give Kurt the benefit of the doubt based on Anna's love of him. So it's not a good. No, it's not a, you not, don't have not to give here. him the benefit of the doubt in this. No, case. not not, no, not here. Elsewhere. 
I think that Andrew is um, Claremont's unofficial PR manager, actually. I'm being a little charitable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's bad. I just feel it's better to have no representation than bad representation because yeah. I truly do think that when you present a stereotype, it's not that kids are going to turn around and be like, I want to learn more about this culture. It's just mainly that they're going to look right. at it and just think these people are bad. And one of the things that got put in place was you can't show contemporary police officers being put under threat or you can't show sort of like, you know, realistic kind of violence and this other stuff. So a guy called Pat Mills, who was very, very big and still is very big, I suppose, in English comics or British comics, said, do you know what, then we are going to make all of this sci-fi tropes. And if you can't show red blood, we can show green blood. And if we can't show <laughs> Dirty Harry or Dixon of Dark Green beating people up, then we will send them into the future. Basically sort of like to prove a point. And so they did and they created 2000 AD. I think, and I'll try to be brief here because I could go on for a while, but um, <laughs> I, I think it, it's, again, a wonderful intertext. This is Claremont sort of showing us what Ilyana would have become had she not made her sacrifice, right? Mm. Uh, it, it's a great bit of like wing manning for Louise Simonson. I read this and it's heartbreaking for me because I want magic to be okay. I always yeah. just want her to be okay. <laughs> um, anyway... I've been very patient. So can we yeah. talk about this Kurt story and the oh, are they, Kurt in the story? thing? <laughs> <laughs> I've been so patient. It, it's hard for me to defend this because I'm not saying like it's a good fantasy because romantic fantasies are often problematic. But I mean, mm -hmm. the fantasy as a female fan who's basically in love with Kurt, he's going to be this fellow monster who's going to save me and we're going to go off and be monsters together. It's like, it's kind of die. what I, that, I know. I don't want to die in the story, but like the other elements of it are exactly exactly what yes. i want out of a Kurt story right. because we, like we go hard on this is just Kurt's yeah. fantasy and i'm like it's my fantasy too though mm -hmm. so she dies in this fantastic four car <laughs> and kurt then uses it to break through that's it yes did and he it, leave her in there did yeah. he just where's her, where's her body i was gonna bring that up at the end where does kind of your particular affection for kitty come in was she always your favorite character when you were reading the comics when you were younger Oh, wow. Uh, I love that question. Uh, and since we're not live, you can boil me down or edit me if I go on too long. Uh, so why Kitty? Well, I don't see her as trans. I know people who do. I don't. But I do read her as someone whose power set and whose difficulties are very, very good allegories for the kind of trans identity that I have and whose other characteristics really map onto who I am and what I can do and how it feels to be me. Alan Davis has said, Chris didn't tell me exactly how to draw this, so I just drew a lesbian seduction. Megan becomes Kurt, but not in a kind of seductive romantic way, but in a way that she is becoming Kurt. She's becoming mm -hmm. a fencer who is clearly a superior fencer to him because she is able to disarm this guy that Kurt immediately lost to. <laughs> and I loved that. I really, really loved that. And she's finally got the escape fantasy that she has had for ever and that mm. comics readers have although we like Gwenpool want to escape into the 616 and she would like to escape the 616 she would like to be able to go to jazz clubs go to cubs games have a girlfriend kiss her girlfriend on page and study a lot of physics and not be endangered every two minutes i can't really blame wozniak for it because nobody could follow alan davis and nobody mm. certainly can follow alan davis on this book super super important character building for rachel uh, Mav, i hated that though because oh, we've okay, been fighting ahead. about that since the yeah. first like, issue of our show and i'm yeah. reading that and phoenix is like no kurt you're the leader yep. and I'm yeah done. let's not prove it
She's just mm. flattering his ego. She's the real leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just a side note, I was very briefly in a band that didn't go anywhere. And <laughs> I was the singer in this band. And what I did for my songs was to take Marvel Cosmic comic books and just do that as lyrics. And there was totally an Adam Warlock song that I can like still sort of remember, which I'm not singing on the podcast. But <laughs> I thought the listeners would appreciate that little grain, that little nugget from my past. Um, Andrew, do you have thoughts about sort of the X-Men and the cosmic universe? She's yeah, like, I know. Yeah, just you're so... gone. I'm throwing you to the moon. <laughs> and who made uh, Frankie Ray into Nova? John Byrne. Oh, he, he yeah. Is metaphorically beating up John Byrne. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm over the moon to be here. This podcast <laughs> is literally my favorite thing of 2021. We can't live up to that if we had no. you on for this issue. <laughs> Living through this moment, this last 18 months or so, is did real grief and trauma in the world. And I think Excalibur has a great appeal. The early part of it does for folks who are maybe feeling dislocated, feeling burdened by grief and are looking for something, maybe escapist, but yet, and silly certainly at times, but that also reflective of maybe what they're feeling. And then for me personally, came at the right time because when I found the podcast, because I was in my writing and just in my life, I was sort of burdened by all of this stuff and everything that's gone on. We've all, you know, it's been a very difficult year and a half or so. And that sort of anger and despair and confusion, it was sort of filtering into my writing in sort of unhealthy ways, in particular, this book that's coming out later. And um, I, I found Excalibur and I found that that spirit and that, that sort of light at the end of the tunnel that I had found in 1988 again through the podcast. And so I do have to say I'm, I'm deeply indebted to you guys Aww. and the podcast because I, I don't know what would have happened with at least this book uh, if I had not found it when I did. So. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. And thank you so much oh. for sharing that. He gave me the Marvel Masterwork hardcovers. Like, here's the X-Men. Want to talk about it? Um, <laughs> and well, it was, well, I mean, I, I, I started reading at like three. So I'm like, not to brag, right. but I was just an early reader. So he was like, well, here's the thing that daddy collects. Like, if you want to read them, but like, don't eat. Well, you read them. It's a hardcover, which I did anyway. <laughs> Those hardcovers are feeding the shit. And I'm like, okay, so I'll, I'll read this this one issue from this other series. It's like, oh, but I'll pick up the next issue of this other series as well because it was fun. And yeah, you just kind of snowball into this. I have 15 titles now in my inbox and my wage does not support my habit. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a... <laughs> I can quit anytime I want to. <laughs> The, the absolute outrage at a man ordering a lemonade is one thing, mm -hmm. but then the whole transforming into the twin brother and it's seemingly not phasing Brian at all. Uh, yes. that's, that's, and I'm just like, have, have you done this before in private? It's kind of the, the implication there almost. So oh, yeah, Esther, there's some you're interesting my things. language. I'm so excited about that scene <laughs> for exactly the same reasons. And he is an upper class putt, by the way. Um, like, like, I mean, aside from being Captain Britain, he's a trust fund baby. He's not, you know, oh, so like, no. you know, when Brian was 19, 20 years old and hanging out at this pub and everyone was nice to him and he thought he was just one of the guys. No, you were the rich dude. So they were nice to you. And he doesn't know that. This is Brian figuring that out. Uh, this is like a dude with an upper class accent trying to visit the deep north where just him opening his mouth projects immediately who he is. So the gender identity of shapeshifters is always kind of like in question just because of the of, of the narrative around them. They can be anything they want. And yeah, okay, they choose to be usually male or usually female in their private lives, but they 
can shift and it's that blurring of the boundaries that kind of gives them a little it, it makes them spicy it makes them spicy interesting characters well let's tell technically our... we could frame this podcast as a battle of two podcasts as <laughs> oh, dear. versus yeah, three panel contrasts. <laughs> oh my goodness that's <laughs> true Over. wow contest of champions <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I love that idea and we might resort to that depending on how much we have to say about this comic book. Not it on defending it, not it. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex just suddenly inexplicably becomes a horse. Well, and, and to be fair, just for the people who can't see this, they're kind of humanoid horses. He's not just straight up a horse. Yeah. It's like, like a, like, he's like he's like that a bipedal sort yeah. of a bipedal horse. He's a man with a horse head. Yeah. Or, so Brian dreams that no one respects him while bound in uh, this really weird. That's quite the booty shot. First up, superficial elements here that, that Megan saying, I wish I was as beautiful as Rachel. Oh, that's your that. mutant fucking power. You can do that now. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Please, Anna, for the listeners, describe this panel. <laughs> yeah, so we get Rachel coming in being ridden by nightmare and she's like a horse with claws and cloven feet at the back but also like human lady boobs i was you know a, a nerdy little child who was maybe too smart for their own good and that's basically kitty pride except she had a cool yeah. telepathic speaking alien dragon mm -hmm. and i did not um still <laughs> angry about that murdering people and drinking blood is real bad but also this idea of out-of-control sexuality is just as bad. To me, the, the issue with this issue is an absence. I really, really, really want a scene where Megan bites Kurt. To have that play out the way that those kinds of scenes play out in all of this vampire mythology and all of its sexual connotations. That would be such a good scene. It would be hard to make that a bad scene. Alistair Mackin on Rachel, who's on the couch with the concussion. And it's like, dude, where's your focus here? This really reads like some classic overcompensation by focusing on the pretty supine lady on the couch versus this living guy who you lock literally in a closet because he might have been bitten. There's stuff we can and will criticize in today's issue, I'm sure, but also there's a two-page splash of all but naked Nightcrawler being caressed and bound up in sticky vines, so <laughs> on balance, I'm not mad at it and looking forward to talking about that. I was probably a fan of the idea of Excalibur before I became a fan of the comic book. I got introduced to many superheroes through the trading cards in the early 90s. Nightcrawler in particular was a character I thought looked great. It's a great design, one of the best costume designs. They've never been able to really get away from it uh, because it's, it's so perfect. And so, oh, I like this Nightcrawler character. He's on Excalibur. Let me see who else is on Excalibur among all these cards. So either he was wearing a loincloth or he made a loincloth in that cave in order to perform this role. At first I was going to gripe on the fact that it has like a tail hole in it. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe that's not weird because it's part of his uniform, but that still implies he cut his uniform into the shape of a loincloth. Why wouldn't you just make underwear? Kurt doesn't see women as evil when they're half naked. It's the problem of Warlord. Like, oh my God, cute woman. I've got to save her because that's what Kurt does. And it turns out, you know, she's the bad guy. For me, the undercutness of it is 
And so we stuck her in a cage because she's not worshipping me, which is how the book ends. So the thing that I think about was sort of a monstrous character. And a lot of monstrous characters do appear naked more often than non-monstrous characters. Is that his nakedness isn't being treated as nakedness because there's an animalisticness to him. And therefore it's not considered erotic. And therefore some of the eroticization is by accident. I came into this expecting shenanigans and I was not disappointed. The complete world that is is trying to teach this young girl protagonist to be a a proper reproductive citizen of the cis-heteropatriarchy and uh, meanwhile lesbianism abounds. But there was a break at some point involving sticks and balls. Yes. He's got a literally soft masculinity. He feels like velvet. <laughs> like, right. is what it is, right? And I mean, we're going to see that come up in a later issue where, like, the girls are all going to point it are, out for are you. fawning <laughs> over him, right? Yeah. I guess I was interested in, Anna, and your sort of hesitation at Kurt not being gender swapped in that initial dream sequence. Because to me, I actually, I saw that. And after the initial immense confusion, was like, oh, so I guess that's because Kurt's gender is Kurt, yeah, that tracks. And I just yeah. sort of moved on and, and looked at all the, the interesting line work of that spread. I mean, I feel like if you know me at all, <laughs> um, you know I'm going to love discussing every bit of that kitty subtext that happens in this issue. Yeah. Kitty gets caught spying on Huntsman. She says, how dare you spy on me? Pins her down on what are supposed to be boxes, but, but very much looks like a mattress. Yep. <laughs> and then the next panel, the next panel is actually framed so that you're kind of looking up Huntsman's shirt. Yeah. Which is intense. And then the next page is another trope of Kitty mm-hmm. being, oh, you're cold in your incredibly skimpy outfit. Here yeah. Here <laughs> shirt. Like, like, this is Claremont giving up on subtlety, right? Oh, yeah. Take my jacket that I just beat you to take back. <laughs> you know? Like, I am now gifting this to you, which is, you know. It... It's the other one. It's the Chicago hoodie. Or yeah. Sweatshirt. Jersey, it's a Chicago yeah. sweatshirt. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I went back too because I assumed it was the jacket and then I was like, it wasn't the jacket right there, but we do see Phoebe showing we'll up. Get there. The jacket the jacket. Oh, we'll yeah. get there. I want to discuss that a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, thought was, I thought it was the jacket because she does have the jacket later, but if it but if it's mm-hmm. not, that means they change clothes twice, which is Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Even if you think of like her first appearance of she shows up, the Hellfire Club's there, it's Emma Frost. There is a hot, mean, blonde lady. And here she shows up, there's a hot, mean, blonde lady and her brain goes, I know what to do with this. (laughs) So, you know, I talk about sexy Nightcrawler a lot and, you know, we have fun with it and everything. But there's an importance to that in a scene like this to feel sexy, to feel beautiful, to feel at home in his body. It's important to communicate that with the artwork here because that's thematically important to the scene and I think it's important to his navigation of disability in this scene. I quite like that whole kind of uncovery scene and the fact that in the space of one panel everyone's just like hey awesome um, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> which is kind of how it should go. Mel's done a lot of audience studies and she found that all these kind of hard luck victim sort of stories aren't remembered like that by the girls who read them they're remembered as kind of like you know brave stubborn sort of protagonists yeah. pushing on through and yeah. showing endurance and you know they're kind of survivors not victims and so on. <laughs> There's just a weird thing to me that's happening here where it's like these adult women go out and do their routine but these younger girls can be even more appealing and i'm like these younger girls who never heard of cheerleading or football before last week yeah (laughs) but they've got tighter butts so they're gonna save the school 
I don't know. I, Claremont going out with such a weak B story bothers me a little bit. And going out with Wagner, again, over-sexualizing a character in a way that contradicts the narrative also kind of feels like a, a lost opportunity. I, I think if Alan Davis illustrates this arc, it could be one of the greats. But we didn't get that. And Claremont got pushed out. And I hope we all like Scott Lobdell and Warren Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go dark with it. For me, one of the big issues is sort of diminishing returns on Rachel's trauma. She keeps being traumatized again and again and again. She keeps confronting her trauma again and again and again, but she never gets actual help. And I think that's a really important missing piece if we're going to go there and really explore trauma. Like it or not, that is how they approach problems, by making them punchable problems, by making conflicts, physical conflicts that you can fight out. And I think if you're somebody that enjoys superhero comics, you enjoy the power of that. And I'm someone who enjoys superhero comics. So as much as I recognize how simplistic it is, I do like seeing Rachel fight back, reduce despair to a tiny transparent thing, and then grab him in her hand and crush him. At one point, they like say that she's a mutant. And, and I was like, oh, right. That whole mutant superheroes thing that like I mostly never think about because I don't read superheroes comics is just like such a strong reason that queer theory belongs in comics. Absolutely. And it will interest you to know that Rachel is a heavily queer coded character. It's the blazer. I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't hide the fact that the rest of that story is not so great involving X-Men and weird gambit connections and just all sorts of nonsense uh it's <laughs> like the early 90s and x-men weird gambit connections <laughs> yeah the way this book presents nuclear powers is propaganda bad it's in the hands of mad scientists <laughs> the good characters think it's evil so it's being it protested. doesn't involve torturing clones <laughs> the, the fail safe is not a monster <laughs> you know what i mean people talk about like differences between the x-men and the avengers and how the x-men are family and whereas the the avengers are like co-workers and i find that that really rings true to me not just in that the x-men have external lives when they're not superheroing but also in that those external lives are so interconnected and messy in the way that real families Mm -hmm. have been in my experience yeah um (laughs) these are people who may not always get along but always care deeply about each other and will always put everything aside for each other it sucks that we have to keep doing it that way, but also like I'm gonna keep doing it because like I care about comics as as a medium, as an art form, as a cultural touchstone. The act of making comics, the art of making comics, is important to me, and I want to share that with people, and I want to be I want to be proud to share that with people. I would I don't want to have to constantly be like, oh, you know, these comics are great. Uh, watch out for this thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or watch out for that thing. I don't want to have to constantly feel like I am apologizing for the thing that I love most in the world. thing that I love about Kurt's humor is that it's this like reckless protest against the impossibility of his existence. Oh, and yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like, I love that about him and I love that about his humor. So the thing about Kurt's teleporting is that it is a non-offensive power and it's not yeah. even really a defensive power. It's a power that's based around mobility and freedom. And for a character who looks like Kurt and who has that prejudice against his looks tied so deeply into his origin his power set is one that allows him to escape it's one that allows him to remove himself and others from harm and that movement is a central theme of his whole character it's not just the teleporting I mean, I think one of the things we talked about with Cross Time Caper is like, well, what was their mission on the Cross Time Caper? Yeah. Did they actually fix anything or solve anything? Or were they just trying to get themselves mm-hmm. out of trouble most of the time? 
I think they just made it worse, and then the kids had to go clean it up. You know, the exiles had to go clean all their crap up. Now we recorded an episode about Nocturne recently for Simply Amazing, which I don't know when that's going to come out. Eventually, probably after this. <laughs> but uh, really, what drew me to her was she was a character who had a very similar upbringing to me because she was raised in a suburb of New York City by parents who loved her in a stable environment. She went to a public high school, just like a normal kid. That attracted me to her a lot. The other thing was she is someone who doesn't look human. She's very unhuman looking, but she's super, super comfortable in her skin and in her body. Mm -hmm. And like that, as someone who was not that way when I was younger, also attracted me very much to her. So do you remember a couple years, a couple months ago, Dave's son posted the Nightcrawler yeah. Goes Down picture? Yeah. So what's funny about that was like 20 years ago, we had a special forum on the Nightcrawler's website. It was a hidden forum that was just for the moderators and Dave. And I remember Dave had a whole thread of a ton of pictures like that. So we just decided to do that. And it turns out that there are all of you crazy people at home listening going, I too would like to talk about Excalibur. And that's great, right? Like, so fan community. Except this yes. issue. Except this issue. No, no, no. We still I, have I, not I mean, talked about it. We're 36 we're, minutes in. Yeah, yeah 20, more, 20 more minutes and we're out. <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> let's work through this. We can, we can, this we can make it. This is a at this point. Know if it was the first time we virtually met, but it might have been. But I gave a talk at like Andrea's like school a year and a bit ago, where I was like had to come, had to come, was graciously invited to come and give a talk about superheroes and sexuality. And it's funny because I was so stressed out and uninspired when I was doing that talk that I kind of just did a sexy nightcrawler talk. And that was like kind of where a bunch of my ideas on that subject started to coalesce. So in a way, Andrea, you were present at my origin story. <laughs> I'm sure we'll come to it, but like I really enjoy how the women in this issue just seemingly can't do anything right. They're like not paying attention. They're like, oh gosh, what does Scarlet Witch say? She's like, here, she says, I blame myself. And it's like, well, of course you do. <laughs> I was thinking about how I could describe this. What I came up with, it's like being hit in the face with like a wet spaghetti noodle, which is like... <laughs> Just like one and just from like some random direction. You weren't sure where it came from. Like it's annoying and you're like, why did that happen to me? But it's not going to ruin your life. I think it's fine for Anna to be proud of what she's done because she does do good work, which is why. And she's not going to say that herself, but I will and Andrew will. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I also think it's okay for her to feel weird about it because I've been in that situation and that's, you know, she's human. Oh, thank you, Mav, You're for welcome. complimenting my humanness. And... <laughs> She's <laughs> no, a blue furry elf. Really... <laughs> seriously, I was, I was very touched by that. Seriously, I'm just being being cynical as a protection. The thing about Excalibur when we were reading it when we were young was like, it was like a TV show that knew it was canceled and had one season to go. <laughs> yes, and it, and it just, yes! And it just didn't care where it went, except Excalibur wasn't canceled. You knew there was going to be another and another and another. For, for anyone who's interested in dragon comics, I think it's essential reading, however many of those there are. Uh, and there are some, but uh, 
that idea of the companion animal story is really, really powerful. And it certainly informs the relationship between Lockheed and Kitty from the very beginning, even before Excalibur. The pet is loyal to her. And sometimes the pet is more than just a pet. Sometimes it's a companion. Sometimes it's a confidant. Somebody earlier said, you know, Lockheed seems to understand Kitty more than anybody else consistently. So there's that sense that our pets get us, right? That our pets are our own private little moments. Like I aggressively hate, I, I hate this. Like I absolutely hate this. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> this sure. Please. Yeah, and yeah. I, I hate myself for hating it because everything Dan and Matt have said is brilliant and insightful, but I still hate it. That's my question right there. Is he oh, Chewbacca or is he Snoopy? <laughs> Snoopy is a dog. Snoopy is absolutely a dog. I don't think Chewbacca is a dog. I think yeah. Chewbacca. I think Chewbacca is a dog who can co-pilot the plane. Oh, see, I think. You know I mean? Yeah, I it's see Chewbacca exactly dog. the opposite way. And I am the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a cool academic study with a social media component. Uh, and according to one angry commenter, it's actually the source of the, quote, ridiculous notion that the X-Men has a queer subtext. So if you've ever appreciated the queer God. subtext of X-Men, you technically owe me a royalty since I invented that in 2019. Oh, and we're you're not welcome. worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> on your business cards exactly. <laughs> that's true um, my name is andrew demand i invented gay <laughs> congratulations andrew i cannot remember the exact date it has to be around about late at 1980 or early 81 because i was at college and i vividly remember walking into the students union and declaring to my friends that i had a new elf and this one was blue and then <laughs> When you apply that kind of pose to a scene in which she's supposed to be thoughtful, in which she's supposed to be having complex emotions, that's when we talk about objectification becoming a distraction because it's taking yeah. away what the meaning of the scene should be by distracting us with her fetishistic presentation so that we actually have trouble listening to her words. 2019, I was recovering from treatment for cancer and I was at home and I was bored and realised that I could buy comics digitally rather than floppies, which I put thousands of upstairs. and. I think the first comic that I looked at involved Kurt and Logan throwing themselves into the sun while declaring their undying love for each other. Yep. And I thought, God, I've been shipping these two since 1980. It's got to notice it's still going on. Kurt's animalistic characteristics and Logan's animalistic senses. And that's a very combustible combination for a lot of interesting sexual situations. I pretty much had an entire set of Excalibur issues and everything. I had like a vintage Alan Davis poster in my bedroom. I've been a fan for a very long time. And th this particular issue was great to me because it represents everything that I love about Excalibur, which is a blend of action and humor and humanity um, and, and usually great art and great dialogue. So yeah, it doesn't get I much better than issue that. 42. I love that Horatio Cringebottom and his assistant Bert <clears throat> From the Ministry for Cross-Time Transport, Regulation, Monitor, and Control, Sanctioned Implementation Department, Operating Charter Authorized by Majestrix, Opal Luna, Slatter 9, by Decree of the Supreme Omniversal Guardian Roma, Daughter of Merlin, Sovereign of Otherworld. Very impressive. <sighs> all, Good job. all of Good those job. names. <laughs> I really want to point out the confidence of Alan Davis. The idea that you would like come back after a long departure and it's all hyped. It's been advertised issues and issues ago and you get reunited with the team and it's a kitchen scene and then <laughs> very little else happens in the issue. It's, it's an objectively silly issue. He takes this road that you should not take strategically and it's perfect. 
for I think the entire next issue is Brian just going to be in his sweatpants. I think so. Oh. I believe yes, I believe he wears the pajama pants for the entire issue. Yes. I just have to say, I'm just I'm sorry. He was so hot in that issue. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, kind of wanted to ask you about it. If I haven't mentioned it before, I'm very excited to talk about this comic book. So <laughs> I, why? <laughs> no idea. Doesn't doesn't hit on any of my core interests at all. The thing that Nick said too about the ways that it encourages you to spend time in individual panels. Uh yeah, definitely part of the sexiness of the sequence as well. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Cuz I was going to say I love how you're saying, "Oh, well, this is the thing that I love." You're very scholarly. This is the thirstiest two pages of comic that Kurt's ever appeared in. This is yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is like super gazy. And I was oh, like, yeah. "That's one of the things that you love about it, really?" Okay. Let's make sure you were going to it. Oh yeah, I mean the, the the sweat has sparkles. I mean it okay. is what it is. Yeah. Okay. I think Kurt's beauty is really important in terms of his imagination of himself. He actually does really love his body, and it's the world that tries to convince him that he shouldn't yeah. love his body. Hundred percent. Because I mean that's very much relates to my own relationship with my body. You know, some of the ways that you know I'm very tall and athletic. I got misgendered sometimes in my youth, in part because of those features, which can make me appear masculine depending on how I'm wearing my hair or how I'm dressed that particular day. And that was very much sort of the sense that I had when I was younger that I actually did feel really comfortable in my body I loved the things that my body could do but the world tries to make you feel like you should be ashamed of those things and so the joy that Kurt takes in being both beautiful and different I think that dynamic is really important in this sequence I'm thinking of kind of page 25. Like 25 I really think sort of the use of silence and space there is sort of important and I was just curious if you had thoughts on it yeah I'd say the use of silence and space there is really important yeah <laughs> <laughs> I asked I mean, that question in, in the wrong way <laughs> Pop culture and comics are freighted with ideas about race and gender and sexuality and shape how their readers think about those things. The example I always use is Chinua Achebe's comment on Heart of Darkness, where he talks about how if you're going to teach Heart of Darkness as this canonical work of modernism and not talk about it of its racism, you're basically canonizing that racism. And, and yeah, I think... Yeah. Something like that goes on, too. If we just sort of consume comics and popular culture as entertainment and do that ignoring what it's doing well and in particular what it might be doing poorly regarding race and representation, we run a similar risk. Picking this specific texture for his fur, it means that he doesn't really feel like a real animal. It means he feels like a toy. He feels like a mm. stuffed animal. And that is a fascinating detail, especially within a story verse in which he canonically makes toys of himself that have like a <laughs> sexual component. So there's a lot going on here. For our listener, I'm not touchy about this, but you know, I am a black person. And so um, understand that this comes from a little bit of personal experience. I've had this happen to me. This to me frequently. It is extremely common for black people to have white people with very little experience with black people come come up and say, "Can I touch your hair?" It's weird, it's creepy. Don't do it. You know, <laughs> the top single at the MTV Music Awards in 1990, which is 1 year before this issue comes out, is Black Velvet by Alan Oh my god. Miles. Oh my oh, god. Which means yes, that in 1999 or 1991, Velvet has never been sexier. So, oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. 
Megan is completely comfortable, however problematic this is, changing her shape to look Asian, to look black. Kurt doesn't do that. Kurt kind of weirdly exists and is presented as a white man who just happens to have blue fur. So I didn't, never thought of him in racialized terms until he started talking about being a mascot and thinking about it. And I started thinking about like, well, why would he be a mascot? And I think it's that there's this level of performance that's going on in everything. It's his empathy. It's his humor. It's him being the fixer for the teams that he's on. And that's like emotionally and even mechanically. It feels like this constant sort of like, what can I do and what do I need to do for them to accept me and keep me around? But I don't believe there's any panel where Inman is used or mm. even an acknowledgement that it's a Nightcrawler costume. He mm. says, I'm going to give you uniforms. And then they're all dressed like him. And that's it's not talked about. <laughs> Just so many questions about where the uniforms came from and the conversations about how they were going to fit these unusual bodies and everything. There's just like a, a fanfic waiting to happen. Band. I know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I feel like Rachel in Excalibur is aspirational in so many ways. And in some ways the book is really explicit about that in some of Kitty's comments early on. But so often when people later were like, oh, there are no female power fantasies in comics. And I'm like, well, I don't know about you, but my female power fantasy growing up was definitely Rachel Summers. I can want to be that. That feels very desirable. And then going back and looking at the run of X-Men, and <laughs> I certainly wouldn't say she's aspirational there, but I feel like she's just incredibly relatable. X-Men is so much about family and found family. And like for her, that is all of it. Like X-Men is her family, literally. And yet at the same time, because of the time displacement stuff, they feel like family to her, but she's continually struggling to feel like she's accepted by them. Yeah. yeah. And then in Excalibur, she fully is. And like, it's just like, it's not a question anymore. And she's so integrated into that team and the way that she really felt like she always wanted in the X-Men run. When Jean dies on the moon, she specifically says that she could suppress the phoenix, but she doesn't want to live like that. It would be too hard, too constant. So seeing Rachel do it successfully here, again, showcases this idea of Rachel not as a reiteration of the phoenix, but as an evolution of the phoenix. So to have Megan's true form be, I don't even know what to describe it, like, like, like a hyperbolic fantasy Barbie doll, I find that really disheartening <laughs> in a narrative that was engaging with monstrosity the way that I think the story was set up to do. I don't know. I kind of hate the idea that she has a true form. She's been a shapeshifter her whole life. The idea that there is some kind of static truth she could go back to doesn't really make any sense to me. So I don't know that there is a good answer, but I almost mm -hmm. wish the answer was this is not a question that makes sense to ask. Yeah. <laughs> well, for Anna, this is one of my favorite Kurt character development moments in the entire run is in this issue. Oh, exciting. Okay, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> He read Mallory when growing up. He probably dreamed of being a knight as a kid. And so I think we get this idea of, you know, he lived, he grew up with books because he didn't have any friends. And so I think there's this idea that Merlin is building upon that cultural expectation of little Brian wanting to be a knight, wanting a father to take care of him, reading Sword in the Stone, where Merlin is effectively the father uh, and the tutor of young King Arthur. And he exploits that. And I guess the implication he exploits that with all the Captain Britain Corps, using those legends to kind of control the core. This might be my like favorite quote in Excalibur. It's kind of counterintuitively. Like I read this long before I had my kids. When when Numbers says, Daddy am I, joy, oh joy. Like that's the perfect encapsulation of what it's like to hold your child for the first time. This like juvenile half articulate oh. bliss. 
<laughs> and I always think of that. Like, like I, I really oh identified god. with that in like the weirdest way. I think that's why I like Numbers and Dragons so much. Oh my god, that's amazing. So my memory is that as a child in a grocery store, my mom would grab a comic book from a spinner rack to keep it quiet while she did grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other part of this is that I grabbed an issue of the X-Men. This is before the X-Men cartoon. I never heard of them other than I remember on a Nickelodeon game show when they asked the kids to tell them something about themselves. One of them had said that they loved the X-Men comic books. And so because of that kid on a random X- oh or, uh, Nickelodeon wow. game show, Episode I grabbed... Double probably. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, probably Double Dare or Legends of the Hidden Temple. One of those. Mm-hmm. I grabbed Uncanny X Men. I believe it's number two eighty two. It was it was in the Muir Island saga. It was the end of a three part story. I think it's a trilogy, but with some I've later found out there were some X Factor issues that tied in. Dozens okay. of characters I had never heard of. I had no <laughs> idea what their powers were. End of a storyline that makes no sense, and I was hooked immediately. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love that. What I think is great about Farron, we are introduced to this character on page two of this book from essentially a cold open. Here's this kid floating here, reading his book, and I hate him. You just look at Farron and you know <laughs> you're supposed to hate that kid. It's a very punchable face that <laughs> he, face yeah, is yeah, it's just If the world were indeed ending in less than an hour, I would 100% choose to hit up the kitchen with Megan and Cerise to make a snack. I don't know why you'd want to be anywhere else. And I hate Farron all the more for failing to realize the gift he was offered. Oh, God, that's so accurate. Oh, my goodness. Can we take a moment to overanalyze sort of the whole homosexual subtext that we got going on with Micromax Necrom? <laughs> Please I'm go on, Nicole. your life force. <laughs> I hope it is as large as your giant frame. And, oh, no, don't let him touch me. I mean... Okay, maybe I was the only person who saw that. No, no, I mean, it is it, it is a naked green man who's saying these things, yes. <laughs> having the limits of his power, that's such a tropey, iconic thing with him. Having the thing of, we need to get the five of us over to this place and it's three miles, can you do it, Kurt? And he's like, I don't know, we might all die. I have to have <laughs> total, like, faith in this and we have to go and I'm probably going to pass out and maybe die once we get there. And that's a wonderful bit of character and tension woven into Kurt's powers. This scene was one of the other reasons why I wanted to you because I want to give you all credit. And I've said this to Anna independently that her scholarship has rewired my brain in terms of how I read comics. Mm-hmm. And so is this podcast. And this is like the perfect example of that because, you know, pre oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. Andy would have read this scene and thought, oh, it's it's Excalibur Turducken or it's Excalibur. <laughs> Force. I, I, was on, I was on the food route. No, that's what we're calling now no. now <laughs> that's it, I'm like, oh, yeah, there, this is a five way. In light of the previous love triangle that, again, Davis mm-hmm. kind of put an end to, I think you especially have to kind of spotlight the idea of Megan reaching out to Brian in Kurt's voice. Yeah. Kurt reaching uh-huh. out through Megan's body. Like, there's, there's uh-huh. something interesting there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so from a super sex angle, the thing that I like about it is that it's this presence and absence of super sex thing, because this is sexy if you want to read it as sexy. You don't necessarily have to read it as sexy, but if you do read it as sexy, it's really fascinating because it's not like someone having penis and vagina sex on panel. It's something different than that, about the ways the bodies can relate to each other in different ways and the different possibilities that bodies can relate to each other, 
especially when you add superpowers to the mix. When you have bodies that have telepathy, that can phase, that can teleport, that can shapeshift. What ways might those bodies be interrelated? And there's a lot of mm -hmm. sexual possibility there. So it's not that we're getting that, that, that activated here. This isn't an orgy, and I don't think it's supposed to be. And yet even mm. the fact that the... Well, okay. I mean, it could I be, but I mean, I'm just, <laughs> okay. I'm just saying They're it's not... They're scissor each other in order to... In order to... Visually, like in each case, each case is stepping in. There's clear genital alignment as the as the uni as the unification. For me, Davis has established an anticipation, so he has to really outdo himself with this battle. It has to be epic, and because it's Phoenix, it has to be cosmic. Because Rachel's been withholding the Phoenix both for personal reasons and then more recently for you know keep Necrom from getting it reasons. So when she cuts loose, it's it's actually really satisfying in a very like visceral lizard brain kind of way. And Rachel doesn't get to cut loose. That that's always been her arc. She's afraid of the Phoenix's power, or other people are trying to control the Phoenix's power, or even her own teammates are trying to control her use of the Phoenix's power. And she specifically punishes him with the thing that she's been dealing with, right? That feeling of being overwhelmed by the Phoenix or that fear of being overwhelmed by the Phoenix. So it's really cathartic that she literally attacks him with that thing that has been assailing her all this time. And through that, she, in theory, ascends because she comes out of it um, in the original Phoenix uniform. I, I love this moment for Rachel. I, I think this is one of my favorite Rachel moments of all time. And of course, the symbolism of them walking on the checkerboard mm, floor checkerboard. of where nobody's, mm -hmm. where nobody's pawns now. Bah, bah, bah. Yeah, except for you are, because you yeah, are chessboards. <laughs> nice little, nice little callback there. Literal characters to... in a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about sex, which is kind of inevitable. What does the future have in store? We'll just have to wait and see, but rest assured our obnoxious laughter will be there on the journey. Thank you so much for listening. Here's to the next 50.